Some years ago, as I was leading this service, as I was uh, getting ready to pronounce the closing prayer, my cell phone rang, which caused a chuckle, but also destroyed the mood. From that time forward, I've made certain I do not bring my cell phone into the auditorium, or if I do, I turn it off. May I respectfully ask that you consider doing the same this evening as we began. Tonight, the cross is shrouded in black. That's because at nine o'clock this morning, the only begotten Son of God, the Son of Man, He who was and is King of kings and Lord of lords was nailed to the cross. And three hours later at approximately 12 noon, after three hours of agony, with one last breath he cried out, It is finished, and gave up the ghost. We all know that very shortly thereafter, the body was placed in a tomb. And then three days later, the earth shook, the stone rolled away, and the resurrected Lord came forth. But tonight, we are here to remember the cross and the death of our Lord And tonight, every one of us can have the hope of spending eternity in heaven because of what happened on that cross. Let's stand and sing together the wonderful cross. Bless 
your name Where the well realm of nature mine That were an offering Isaiah wrote these words concerning our Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Oh God, how can we ever adequately say thank you? Father God, tonight as we are here to meditate upon the cross of Jesus, we know, God, that the significance of this is so significant that no human mind can truly grasp it. But we ask tonight that by your Holy Spirit that you would touch each of us and even raise the gratitude in our hearts that is there and grasp in a more full way than we ever had before, O oh God, what you did for us through Jesus on Calvary. Make your presence known tonight in this room, O oh God. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. 
Let me read, if you be seated, from Mark chapter 15, a description of that which we commemorate tonight. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed, spitting at him, and in a mocking way, kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off, put his garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, sign of Cyrena, who's the father of Alexander Rufus, known to many of you. They pressed this man into service to bear his cross. They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour of when they crucified him, and the inscription charge against him read, and you will notice in three languages, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left, and thus the scripture was fulfilled which says, he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified him, crucified with him, were casting the same insult at him. When the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Join me in singing, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. There is a fountain filled with blood, not from Emmanuel's name. And sinners blood beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty
lie silent in the grave, lie silent in the grave, lie silent in the grave. And this poor listening, staggering cup, lie silent in the The more you know, the more you don't know. The only constant is change. You cannot not communicate. Actions speak louder than words. Not making a decision is sometimes a decision in itself. Now these statements I just read are paradoxes, all of them, defined by Oxford Dictionary as a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true, can also be a person or thing that combines contradictory features or qualities. It's true of life in general that there are paradoxes. There are other things in life that we could categorize as ironic. That's defined as the use of words to express something other than, and especially the opposite, of the literal meaning, and often the inconsistency between a situation developed in a drama and the accompanying words or actions that is understood by the audience, but not by the characters in a play. If there was ever a real-life drama played out in human history, it was all that happened on Good Friday, those things that we remember here tonight. We've only cited a few examples of this kind of paradox and irony from daily life, and there are many more examples of these kinds of things in the Word of God and in our Christian life. Think of some of these truths from our faith in Scripture. The Word turns so much of our common everyday thinking upside down. 1 Corinthians, for example, tells us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It also tells us that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those who are being saved. God delights in turning tables, confounding experts, and revealing ironies and paradoxes. It's in dying that we live. It's in denying ourselves that we find ourselves. It's in giving that we receive. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The weak become strong. His power is perfected in our weakness. Leaders must serve, and the greatest among you are the ones who serve. To save your life, you must lose it. The last shall be first, and the first last. Things that are gain, we count as loss. We see this again and again in Scripture, these paradoxes, these ironies. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. 
Now, these are the kinds of paradoxical truths that can really cause us to just break out in doxology, to break out in praise, even as Paul did at the end of Romans 11 when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Tonight I want to spend our few minutes together specifically exploring the paradox and irony at Calvary. I hope by the end we'll be like Paul and we'll want to break out in praise. Don Carson wrote a great book on the cross called Scandalous, and in it he wrote, Nothing is more central to the Bible than Jesus' death and resurrection. The entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago and attempts to make the Bible make sense that do not give prolonged thought to the integrating of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus are doomed to failure and they're at best exercises in irrelevance. So just as we see paradox and irony throughout the Word of God, we see it in the day that we could legitimately call the primary pivot point of human history, the day when God turned the tables on the enemy of our souls and purchased salvation for us on the cross of Christ. We're going to take a closer look at three of these, but in thinking about this and reading the different gospel accounts of Calvary, I found 10 different paradoxes and ironies at Calvary. There are probably more that we could name. But let me just name these 10, and then we're going to look at three of them. The one who bought us with a price was betrayed for a price. They mocked as king the real and genuine king of kings. The one who spoke creation into existence didn't speak to defend himself. The only righteous judge was judged by the unrighteous. The sinless one was condemned for sinners. The omnipotent, all-powerful God the, was the one who was weak. The utterly powerless one is all-powerful. The water of life was thirsty. Remember Jesus said on the cross in one of the gospel accounts, I thirst. The one who conquered death had to die. The one who can't save himself saves others. The man who cries out in despair trusts God. You'll see all of these paradoxes and ironies in the various gospel accounts of the Calvary story of Good Friday, and so let's take a closer look at some of these. First of all, the man who was mocked as king truly is the king. In most ways, the crucifixion of Jesus was carried out in the normal way that this horrible means of execution was inflicted on countless thousands during the history of the Roman Empire. Jesus was flogged first with a whip that had pieces of metal and bone in it. It was designed to tear his flesh and inflicts maximum damage and suffering. He was made to carry the cross beam on which he would have his hands nailed to the place where he'd be hung naked and bleeding. These things were routine with crucifixions. All of this inflicted excruciating pain on the one who was condemned. The very word excruciating is from the Latin origin meaning out of the cross. 
So that means that the cross on which our Savior died for us has come to define the most intense pain and suffering. But there were some ways in which Jesus' execution by crucifixion was not common to others who suffered the same kind of fate. What the Roman soldiers did in some ways was different for Jesus. They gather around him, they strip Jesus of his clothes, and they drape some sort of a purple robe on him, pretending he is a royal figure. Then they wind together some strands of vine thorns with spikes in them, maybe up to six inches long. You see the crown of thorns up here. This is probably a decent representation of what they push down on his head into his scalp to make a crown of thorns and adding to the pain and the blood loss that Jesus already had from the flogging. Then they put a staff into his hand, and they pretend it's a king's scepter. And then mockingly bowing before Jesus in reverence and hitting him, they cry, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spit in his face, and they strike him again and again with the mock scepter. Now the gospel writers know We as the readers of the Gospels know, and God knows, that Jesus is, in fact, the King of Kings, the King of the Jews, and he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not just the King of the Jews. We're reminded of this by the Gospels. There's the charge against Jesus, which is nailed to the cross above his head, and as Jim mentioned a moment ago, it reads, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. That was meant as mockery, too. But the reality of Jesus being the true King of the Jews is made very clear throughout the Gospels, even from Jesus' birth. You remember what the Magi asked when they came, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? Jesus speaks throughout his earthly ministry of this kingdom, and in some of the so-called parables of the kingdom, the stories Jesus tells sometimes identifies Jesus himself as the king. The same question is raised in the trial before Pilate. Pilate, the governor, asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus was silent through most of the interrogations, but in that case, he said, yes, it is as you say. Of course, Jesus knows, and we know, that he's not the kind of king that Pilate needs to fear. He's no military threat to Caesar. He poses no political threat. And Pilate knows that too, so that's why Pilate tried to release Jesus. But do we see the irony here? When the soldiers called Jesus the king, while mockingly adding to his physical suffering with a crown of thorns, they meant the exact opposite. They didn't really think Jesus was a king. It was a joke to them. He was a pathetic criminal headed to a horrible execution. The soldiers no doubt thought it was funny to mock him like that. And isn't that a horrible part of human nature? mocking and laughing at people who are suffering. But their words actually tell the truth. Jesus really is the king. The man who is mocked as king is the king. And again, not just the king of the Jews. Just before giving us the great commission, after his resurrection, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So that makes him not only the king of the Jews, that makes him king of the universe. That makes him king over you and over me. And one day, day, Scripture tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The man who is mocked as king is the king. Jesus calls the 12 together in Matthew chapter 20, 
and gives us one of the most important insights into the nature of the kingdom. Beginning with verse 25, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Carson wrote, we have to see clearly what Jesus means here. He does not mean that there is no sense in which he exercises authority. What he means rather is something like this. The kings and rulers of this fallen world order exercise their authority out of a deep sense of self-promotion, out of a deep sense of wanting to be number one, out of a deep sense of self-preservation, out of a deep sense of entitlement. By contrast, Jesus exercises his authority in such a way as to seek the good of his subjects and takes him finally to the cross. He did not come to be served as if that were an end in itself. Even in his sovereign mission, he comes to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We know that many kings are powerful. Jesus is powerful, and on this side of the cross, We know that. But here's another irony I want to explore about Calvary. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. On that first Good Friday, it's pretty clear that Jesus was weak and powerless. He seems to have no hope of rescue. He suffered. He was shamed. He was broken in body and spirit, and there was no hope except the release of death. They mocked him about his weakness and powerlessness too. Some at the foot of the cross said to Jesus, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Now Jesus had spoken about destroying and rebuilding the temple. What kind of power would he need to do that? The temple that they were referring to, the physical temple, took years, not days to build. The mockery of the crowd illustrates the contrast between Jesus' claims to power and his current powerlessness. The mockers, like the soldiers who mock Jesus as king, they think they're being funny and ironic. Here they are again, trying to be humorous. And here's a man hanging helplessly on a cross, suffering immensely and seemingly powerless. They mock him by saying, save yourself. And they are convinced in this mocking that he can't possibly save himself because he's just so powerless. But again, just as the gospel writers know, and we know as the readers of the gospels, and God certainly knows, Jesus is not powerless. We, with the hindsight of Scripture, know that Jesus' demonstration of power is displayed precisely because of the weakness of the cross. From John's gospel, we know what Jesus actually said about the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And according to John, Jesus' opponents didn't have a clue what he meant. In fact, Jesus' own disciples at that time had no idea what he meant. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, John says, the disciples then remembered his words and they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. They knew that Jesus wasn't talking about the literal physical temple. He was talking about his body. 
Under the terms of the Old Covenant, the Jewish temple was the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. This was the place of sacrifice. This was the place of atonement for sin. But after the cross, where Jesus, by his sacrifice, pays for our sin, Jesus himself becomes the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. Thus, he becomes the temple, the meeting place between God and his people. It's not as if Jesus, in his incarnation, serves as the temple of God. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It is in Jesus' death, in his destruction, and in his resurrection three days later, that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God, becoming the temple, becoming that living sanctuary, the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. To use the Apostle Paul's language, we do not simply preach Christ, but we preach Christ crucified. The gospel writers know and we know and God knows there's even more irony in this. It's because Jesus stayed on the cross in total, complete powerlessness that he establishes himself as the temple. And then he comes to the resurrection in fullness of power. The only way Jesus will save himself and save his people is by hanging and suffering on the cross in complete powerlessness. So again, ironically, we see that the mockers spoke more truth than they ever realized. Their insults, their condescension, describe in a way they didn't know what is actually accomplishing the salvation of the Lord. The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. It is in dying that we live. It is in denying ourselves that we find ourselves. It is in giving that we receive. Our own death to self certainly doesn't accomplish what Jesus did, but the same principles apply to us. In our weakness, he is strong. We see the mockery of Jesus as he hung on the cross continue. Matthew's gospel tells us the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him too. There were a lot of mockers at the foot of the cross. He saved others, they said, but can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Perform for us, Jesus. Do a miracle. Here we see another irony at Calvary. The man who can't save himself saves others. These mockers remembered the reports that Jesus saved many other people from sickness, from demon possession, from hunger, and even raised the dead. And they mock him now, probably never really having believed these reports, because he apparently can't even save himself from execution. How much of a savior could he be if he can't save himself? And again, they're using irony that they thought was funny. That's what you call a sick sense of humor. He's a disappointing savior, and he's a failure, and he's a fraud, so let's laugh at him. But here, once more, we see the mockers speaking more truth than they realize, especially at that moment. Matthew, as the gospel writer here in this instance, he knows, and we know, and God knows, that in one very real and very deep sense, if Jesus is really going to save his people from their sins, he cannot save himself from the agony of the cross. We know that saving 
people from their sins is Jesus' mission on earth. Even before he was born, we read in Matthew chapter 1, we see God assuring Joseph that the child his fiancée Mary is pregnant with is from the Holy Spirit. And God tells Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which roughly means Yahweh saves. So Matthew gives us some insight into Jesus the Messiah's mission in the very first chapter of his gospel by telling us why God assigned him this name. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. We have to keep this opening announcement in the Gospel of Matthew in mind throughout the Gospels, and especially in light of the cross. Just as the previous night, what we call Maundy Thursday, Jesus had affirmed this mission when he instituted the Lord's Supper, instructing us to do this in remembrance of him, even as we did here last night, even as we do each Sunday morning here at TCF. This is to help us understand the absolute importance of Jesus' blood shed for you and for me on the cross. After all, what did Jesus say? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Peter told us Jesus died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Jesus himself said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. When we trust in Christ for our salvation, we are trusting him as the one who bore our sin in his own body on the cross. We are trusting him as the one whose life and death and resurrection accomplished in our place as our substitute has reconciled us to God. Think of, just, think of this for a moment. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was omnipotent. He was all-powerful. He could have acted like a superhero in that moment on the cross. He could have caused the nails to fly out of his hands and his feet. He could have flown off the cross, even as his wounds healed before their very eyes. He could have come down and destroyed all the mockers. Thanos is defeated. Maybe a little lightning all around. Great ending to the movie, right? Wrong. Because if he had done that, the mockers and those present as his execution and all the rest of us could not have believed in that Jesus because he didn't complete the sacrifice. If he didn't suffer and actually die, there's nothing to trust in except our own futile and empty self-righteousness. The penalty for sin would have remained. But remember Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. And on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Carson writes, suddenly the words of the mockers take on a new weight of meaning. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. The deeper irony here is that in a way they did not understand, they were speaking the truth. If he had saved himself, and he could have, but he could not have saved others. The only way he could save others was precisely by not saving himself. In the irony, behind the irony that the mockers intended, they spoke the truth that they themselves did not see. The man who can't save himself saves others. 
One of the reasons they were so blind is that they thought in terms of merely physical restraints. When they said he can't save himself, they meant that the nails held him there. And the soldiers prevented any possibility of rescue. And his powerlessness and his weakness guaranteed his death. He can't save himself expressed a physical impossibility. But Jesus couldn't save himself, not because of any physical constraint, but because of a moral imperative. He came to do his Father's will. And this was a will that was established by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before time began. And Jesus, God the Son, would not be deflected from it. It was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. Remember what Jim Grinnell reminded us of last week in his Palm Sunday message. He said, Jesus set his face like flint. That means he was determined. He was resolute to go toward Jerusalem. Flint being a rock, it was a stony determination toward his suffering, toward his death, and toward the resurrection that awaited him. It was his unqualified resolve out of love for his father, to do his father's will that held him on the cross of our salvation. And because of that, it was his love for sinners like you, like me. He really could not because he would not save himself. So thanks be to God, Jesus finished the job. It is finished. So what do we do? We fix our eyes on him, trusting in his sacrifice for us because he willingly, and scripture tells us he not only willingly, but for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame for you and for me. And I mentioned near the beginning of the message that this should bring us to doxology. This should bring us to praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Again, how can we ever, ever, ever adequately thank God that Jesus did not save himself in order to save us? May God be praised. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Slain from the foundation of the world. For sinners crucified, O holy sacrifice, behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb. Mighty God in heaven, again, even though it is our heart to do so, we realize we cannot even begin to comprehend 
the magnificence of what happened on Calvary. And indeed, the paradoxes that, uh, indeed, Father, as far as the human mind is concerned, indeed are beyond us. But, oh God, we are thankful, we are thankful, we are thankful that tonight we can stand before an empty cross knowing that the tomb will be opened. Salvation has been complete for us. Hebrews chapter 9. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the cross and the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Indeed, he did not come down from the cross, but he's coming again. Oh, how we long for that. May it even be today. As you leave the auditorium tonight, we ask you to do so quietly because there are some who love to sit for a while and meditate upon the cross of our Lord. We are dismissed. <laughs>